thanks for joining Sapelo Nerds, a coastal science podcast. I'm your host, Corinne. And I'm your host, Brittany. And we work at the National Estuarine Research Reserve, or NEAR, on Sapelo Island, a Georgia barrier island. For today's episode, we're going to talk about a species that everyone who lives on the coast has at least glimpsed a side of. Shorebirds! Wow. Way to give away the dramatic suspense. Yes, shorebirds. Birds in general are one of the most fascinating creatures for humans. We tend to romanticize birds more than any other animal group due to their ability to fly, their lovely singing voices, and they're common and easy to see in your own backyard. Now, shorebirds are different from your backyard bird species because they nest on our beaches. Wading birds and shorebirds are birds of the order Chloradria forms, which are species who are commonly found wading along shorelines and mud flats in order to forage for food burrowing in the mud and the sand. Here, that is typically small arthropods such as aquatic insects or crustaceans. There are approximately 217 recognized species of shorebirds in the world, with 81 that occur in the Americas for all or part of their life cycle. American oyster catchers, Wilson's plovers, and least terns are some of the birds that use sites such as Little Tybee Island, Pelican Spit off of Sea Island, Cumberland Island, and the southern end of Jekyll Island for nesting. Among other species, black skimmers, royal terns, and gull-billed terns also nest on Georgia's beaches and offshore sandbars. You see, it's the unique curved coastline of the Georgia Bight which make our coast such a great shorebird habitat. We've talked about how that curvature gives us a really large tidal range. This intertidal zone of extensive salt marshes, expansive sand and mudflats, and undisturbed areas of beach creates huge areas of potential food resources that are exposed by the receding tide. And one of my favorite shorebirds here in Georgia, the piping plover, can be seen scurrying its big fat foofy body along its thin little orange legs, chasing the tide line in search of food, careful not to be barreled over by the oncoming waves. If you haven't seen Disney Pixar's short film Piper, I highly recommend watching it as it's a great depiction of the day of the life of a shorebird. I believe the bird in the animation is really a sandpiper of some sort, but it's kind of hard to tell. And that's really a problem with shorebirds. They can be one of the most difficult groups for even experienced birders to tell apart. Shorebirds come in many shapes and sizes, but all of them share certain physical and behavioral traits. Nearly all shorebirds have a distinct preference for wet habitats and shorelines, both on coasts as well as along inland waterways, marshes, or, or general riparian habitats. Most shorebirds are carnivorous and eat a range of insects, mollusks, crustaceans, worms, larvae, tadpoles, and similar prey. Physically, these birds have round heads, generally longer legs, and very useful bills to probe for these foods in the sand, mud, gravel, and water. And just to make it even more difficult to identify them, many shorebirds are what's known as gregarious, which means you're often seeing them in mixed flocks that include several different species. So identifying one bird in a crowd doesn't always mean they're the same species. You typically see about 40 to 20 birds clustered together near the waterline on Sapelo's Nanny Goat Beach, and sometimes we identify four to five different species mixed in that group. Not to mention, shorebirds, like other birds, have various plumages throughout the year. In the summer, they may look very different than during the winter. Take the black-bellied plover, who has a large black patch from its face down its belly and a pretty speckled back during the breeding season. As the seasons change and the birds are no longer trying to attract a mate, they lose that striking coloration and can be easily mistaken for other plover species in the area. Most shorebirds are a dull brown or gray on their backs and white on their bellies, so it's really tricky to tell them apart during the winter. 
but it does really help them blend in with the sand. Don't even get me started on the variations between females and males in the same species as well. Oh, I have a very hard time with that. I will commonly mistake females for completely different species. This is actually called sexual dimorphism and is common among birds, but occurs in numerous different animal groups. Essentially, sexual dimorphism is where a male and female have distinct color, size, and or plumage differences that distinguish them from one another. Typically, male birds tend to have more showy plumage to attract their females, but that is not always the case. With shorebirds, females tend to have similar bland coloration amongst numerous similar species like the plovers, sanderlings, and sandpipers. And during the breeding season, these birds are often shy and will engage in dramatic distraction displays to protect their ground-level nests and chicks. They will fly off together in large groups as well to protect themselves from predators like falcons, who have a more difficult time picking them apart when they're stuck together. Have you ever seen a shorebird nest? I have. When I used to work for the South Carolina Department of Natural Resources, we had several areas that were specifically roped off on several of our uninhabited islands for shorebird nest monitoring. It would be crazy difficult sometimes to walk through there to count their nests. You see, shorebird nests are not like your typical bird nests at all. They are very different, and this can cause a lot of problems. You see, shorebirds nest on open beach and within dune vegetation. Nests are typically shallow scrapes lined with shell fragments and other debris, and are difficult to find since shorebirds rely on concealment as a primary defense. Birds and eggs are well camouflaged and remain still when approached. The eggs can blend in very well in the sand or in the rack line, typically where people are walking or setting up umbrellas on inhabited beaches. Exactly. We would often find people wandering in the protected shorebird habitat, and they would tell us that they thought it was okay since they didn't see any nests. Unfortunately, we'd find broken eggs scattered in their wake. They didn't mean to do it, but putting up sensitive habitat markers or signs is part of a biologist's job, and shorebird guys and gals are trained for years to recognize these indicators. Ignoring warning signs is never a good idea, especially since shorebirds are federally protected, not only under the Migratory Bird Treaty Act, but also many are endangered species, which earns you a hefty fine and possible jail time. It may seem extreme, but the population numbers for these birds are dramatically declining due to habitat loss, primarily from beachfront development and beach erosion. They are very important species for a number of reasons, but one of the most important reasons to protect shorebirds is their role in global nutrient exchange. You see, shorebirds facilitate the energy and nutrient exchanges between the land and the sea. Because a lot of them are long-distant migrants, they also facilitate the energy and nutrient exchanges across different ecosystems and completely different continents, something that is usually overlooked and underappreciated. A sharp decline in a certain species here can mean a drastic change in the landscape across the globe due to an increased number of prey species or plants that these birds typically eat in pretty large quantities for their sizes. Yeah, and that's part of the reason we have so many different species of shorebirds here along the Georgia coast. It's a great stopping point for birds to refuel on their migratory patterns. We've mentioned some of these crazy migration paths in our past episode, Good Migrations. So if you haven't listened to it yet, you should probably check it out. We actually went on an in-the-field interview with bird biologist or ornithologist who works with us in the Georgia Department of Natural Resources Wildlife Resource Division to learn a little bit more about monitoring these populations and migrations. So we helped survey a rather windy portion of Nanny Goat Beach here on Sapelo with DNR wildlife biologist Todd Schneider. 
Unfortunately, our recording equipment picked up really nothing but wind. Podcasting on a barrier island comes with its challenges. And rather than torturing you with garbled audio or forcing Todd to repeat himself again, though he does love talking about the birds, we thought we'd just share a little bit about what we learned. So Todd, what's your favorite part about working with shorebirds? Well, I really like... Hey, uh, Brittany, we probably don't need to go through it like that. <laughs> How about we just tell them what he, Todd said? <laughs> okay, we can go on a short summarized version and be lame. This year was the Piping Plover Survey. DNR biologists and volunteers conduct this survey every five years across Georgia's coast. They do this simultaneously, starting two hours before high tide and ending two hours after high tide. During this survey, researchers count more than just piping plovers. They count all of the shorebirds they see. Piping plovers have been a focal point because they were federally listed as endangered back in 1988. This survey formed when their recovery plan was revised in 1996. And after just the first piping plover survey, biologists realized they gathered tons of really valuable information about numerous different shorebirds whose populations were also in decline, such as red knots, oyster catchers, and willets. Rather than change the piping plover survey protocol, say that five times fast, biologists decided to start an annual survey called the Midwinter Shorebird Count. Todd also specified that this helps when you have bad weather days, like our particularly windy one, to not lose data for essentially a decade if you're only surveying every five years. So now we still have the piping plover survey every fifth year, like this year, and every other year is the Midwinter Shorebird Count. Brittany and I actually really enjoyed learning from Todd about the different species of shorebirds and tricks to identify them. So we thought we'd play you some of our more usable audio from the interview. So what we do is I do a diagram, it's like a cross, and this bird had a blue, the, the lower leg, so below the ankle, down here, he had a blue above a yellow. So yellow is the base, blue is there. I couldn't see the right leg. Sometimes they'll have a metal band, the fish and wallet, what we call fish and wallet, it's actually USGS band mm-hmm. um, that you normally see. Yeah, they'll, they'll all have yeah they'll all have those. All the ones that are banded will have that. But a lot of times that's sometimes it's down on the lower leg, and sometimes it's up, you know, up up above this area, above the above the ankle. But it seems like it's up in the hip area. It's really not. Reading the bands is the biggest frustration, and it's you know what we do is read what we can. There are 14 birds here, which is a good number. It's you know I think we had as much as 16 here pretty good number um and they're all i mean i had them all very close proximity scope but i just couldn't read most of the bands most legs are i couldn't read both all the the birds that were banned i couldn't read both legs because they, either they're running too fast at a distance or they were lift up you don't know what she like that so they very carefully move along and kind of keep up and try and get some looks and then we'll do this this little path these things evolve too we had uh 1600 or 1800 uh dunlin one time, so two thousand wow. up to two thousand Dunlin. That's not unusual. Sixteen hundred, and we had a bunch of other stuff. And there's about 10, 12 species of shorebirds here. There's also this Dunlin, uh, semi or Western Sandpiper, uh, a couple of species like that. They look very similar with their heads tucked in. Um, and there's a few that you can tell Sanderlings, and the one you see chasing the waves all the time. So it looks like a piping plover, except it's got a little bit longer bill. There's a couple other things you can tell. And I always say, by behavior, if it's moving, you can usually tell it's a sanderling. It's to get fat reserves. So a lot of the birds will get you know, ha- almost half their body weight to half their body weight in fat, and then they'll burn it up. 
There's one called the bar-tailed godwit. We have marble godwits, which could go pretty long distance, but the bar-tailed godwit goes from Alaska and Russia to New Zealand, six, six, well, almost 7,000 miles, straight shot over the ocean, 13 days straight, oh my flying gosh. about 30 miles an hour. Yeah, yeah, it's just a resting behavior, so they don't have to hold their head up. It's yeah, just like us putting our head on a pillow. We can't really do that because our necks aren't flexible. They have vertebrae that are more flexible and more vertebrae, so they can actually, especially cat and geese, that long neck. Imagine holding that neck up all the time, it's a lot of effort. So I, it's really a situation, I think, where you, you know, it's just an easy way to rest. They'll tuck their head back in their feathers and go on one leg a lot of times. Yeah, their, their legs are different than ours. You know, we get fatigued like that, but their legs are kind of locked. The muscular is different, just like their wings. A lot of these long-distance birds, like the pelagic birds, but even a lot of others. And the thing can do is birds can shut off half their brain at times. So they can be kind of aware of things. We really enjoyed learning from Todd and really appreciated him taking the time to include us in the survey. Even though we didn't get to use a lot of the audio, hopefully you guys can still piece together everything that we were asking. Corinne, what do you call a shorebird when it's in the desert, though? Mm, I don't know. What? Lost. <laughs> All right. Well, what is a seabird's favorite pop song from the 80s? Well, that's a tough one. I don't know. What? Gulls just want to have fun. Um. <laughs> hey everyone, it's Colby from the Stewardship Program at Signer. Shorebirds love estuaries, and you should too. I Heart Estuaries Week is February 10th through 15th of this year. It is a national social media campaign that demonstrates local support for federal programs that benefit estuaries to Congress. Through the I Heart Estuaries campaign, we can raise a collective, lighthearted voice in support of estuaries and programs like the Mirrors. Want to join in on the action on social media? Use the hashtag iHeartEstuaries to tag your photos around our estuaries. Need some reasons to love the estuaries to share with others? Here's some facts. The coastal recreation and tourism industry generate eight to $12 billion per year in the United States, and much of it happens in estuaries. Also, estuaries are nurseries to more than 75% of all the fish and shellfish harvested in the U.S. Most of the fish that we love to eat spend part of their lives in an estuary. Also, small but mighty estuaries make up only 4% of the area in the continental United States, but are actually home to 40% of the U.S. population and 47% of the nation's GDP. Reserves love estuaries so much that their monitoring programs generate more than 48 million data points every year. You can say that we're a bit obsessed. Anyways, thank you for your support. For more information about any of the topics we covered today or to submit your question that may be featured in our upcoming episodes, please email us at signer.socials at gmail.com. That's S-I-N-E-R-R dot socials at gmail.com. Thank you for listening to Sapelo Nerds, a coastal science podcast brought to you by the Sapelo Island National Estuarine Research Reserve. Please check back for more episodes released on the 1st and the 15th of each month. And that's the Sapelo Sound.